You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. We've built, I think, one of the world's largest knowledge bases of what's going on in people's heads when they're inside of a virtual or mixed reality experience. And we've seen results across every major platform from Oculus, Rift, to Vive, to Tango, to HoloLens. And, and it's helped us build a pretty compelling picture. It's helped us place bets. And it's also helped us refine the experiences as we move into new platforms. I'm Mark Pawlowski, founder of Mix. And that was Josh Shamtai, who's the director of productions and operations at Lowe's Innovation Labs. And Josh was talking about the work they're doing on applied neuroscience to understand how users really feel about a new generation of virtual and augmented and mixed reality experiences in the retail environment. Now, Lowe's isn't going to need much introduction to our listeners in the US, but for those outside who aren't familiar with it, it's the $70 billion giant of home improvement in the US market. They've got about 1,800 retail locations. It's been going since 1946. I mean, to put it simply, it's a bit of an institution in the US in a way that B&Q in the UK, for instance, despite ostensibly being in the same business around DIY and home improvement, hasn't really quite achieved yet. So Josh joined just over a year ago to help a team founded by Kyle Nell to do quite a rare thing to put a a traditional company in a pretty traditional industry at the forefront of experimental retail innovation. And our conversation turns out to be rather interesting on a few levels. So firstly, Josh talks about some of the techniques that they're using to maintain these consistent and engaging narratives, which bring the whole organization along on the journey with them from creating comic books, tapping into the design skills of employees on the shop floor. And we also go on to talk about some of the ways that they're combining applied neuroscience and more traditional user research techniques to get a clearer sense of people's reactions to some really quite cutting edge stuff that they're doing, like the use of robotic exoskeletons. Uh, We also go on and and talk about some of Josh's own journey um, from working creative agencies to designing one of the first augmented reality games, which was actually a Star Wars themed thing involving a laser tag gun. Uh, Now, as ever, there are show notes with links to all of the things that Josh and I talk about at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. So here we go. Enjoy. Josh, welcome to the Mex Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to join me for the show today. Whereabouts are you dialing in from? Uh, I am in Mooresville, North Carolina. Okay. It's pretty rainy here right now. <laughs> well, let's Not, see if we can unusual. brighten things up with a, a bit of discussion about what's going on around user-centered design in this wonderful world of, of emerging technologies. Uh, and I guess that maybe was uh, our 
introduction as well was I noticed some of the interesting things which um, you and Lowe's, the company that you, you work with, had been doing around augmented and, and virtual reality, which is obviously an area which is very much of interest to people working in user experience at the moment. But what really caught my attention with the things that you guys are doing is that uh, the technology in some ways seems kind of secondary to more of what you're trying to do around telling a story or you know, creating a certain narrative for your users. Now, when you guys are, are looking at some of these things that are emerging around augmented, virtual, mixed reality, how do you position that? How do you think about the, the role that those technologies might be able to play for some of your users and customers? You know, great question. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess to back things up, you know, even a minute, you know, Lowe's. So I'm, I'm here with Lowe's Innovation Lab. And when people first hear, you know, the, the name Lowe's, they think of, you know, one of the world's biggest retailers, you know, a hardware store, place where I go to buy wood and I go to buy hammers you know, what business do they have being in, you know, emerging technology and things like that? Um, and, you know, I'll be, I'll be quite honest, sometimes even within the company, you'll have folks, you know, wondering the same thing, right? And so, you know, Lowe's Innovation Lab, I think our core ethos has always been about bringing about behavior change, about changing perceptions within the company and without to help not only take advantage and experiment with emerging technologies, um, but to embrace disruption and make it a core function of the business. And so, you know, to your question about how we start to get at some of the virtual, you know, mixed reality tools, uh, what guides everything we do uh, is not, it's not just pure data. It's not, uh, you know, PowerPoint presentations. Everything we do starts with narrative. Um, And, it's very important, I think, when you set any company off on a journey to start exploring potentially radical and disruptive, sometimes even painful futures, um, you really need to frame everyone against the same common narrative. Um, and so what we do here at Lowe's Innovation Labs, um, working with a group of science fiction writers and artists, uh, we actually turn our data, both that's, you know, data that's generated by the company and trends uh, and third-party research that's going on inside of us, and we hand it over to visionaries, and they come back and create stories. And we actually use those with our executive teams to set our North Stars and define common, literally stories delivered, you know, sometimes in comic book form, to determine which directions we want to go in. Um, and that method is what led us to explore, you know, virtual and mixed reality. Um, you know, a team of, you know, sci-fi writers generated, uh, you know, a handful of narratives that were really interesting about the disruptive effect uh, a truly integrated digital and physical world would bring to the world of brick and mortar retail. And it, it seems obvious, probably, I mean, I, you know, I know to you, we've talked a lot, you know, we've talked a bit about this. Um, probably anyone listening seems pretty obvious that um, that tight integration portends really different uh, different things and radical change for brick and mortar retail. We envisioned a few customer stories um, and were given permission, basically, by our executives to explore the world of virtual mixed reality. And, and once we had that, 
And once we had that fundamental narrative, we were able to move forward and start generating a series of proofs of concept. And now, about three years later, uh, I think we've done more in the world of virtual and augmented reality than probably any other retailer um, out there. So. No, that's I don't know if that answers your question exactly. I tend to. <laughs> no, no, very much so. And I think you know you set an interesting context there, which, as you say, is is all important about being able to bring uh, the wider organization with you to be able to make really widespread change happen within a, a large company, particularly a company which has a heritage and a tradition uh, as Lowe's does. Um, now, what about your own journey to get into that role? What was your motivation for taking on a, a role like that, given your own personal background um, around you know, some quite pioneering stuff in, in augmented reality? Yeah, sure, sure. So so I've been with Lowe's Innovation. Actually, today marks one year here. It's, so it's uh, you're catching me on my anniversary. Congratulations. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks. Well, and it's it's... You know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, quite frankly, so I had lived in Queens, New York, for like the last fifteen years or so. Um, had not lived in a you know a reasonably sized home to take care of, and so what was really funny um, when this opportunity you know came about, everyone from my friends to my parents thought maybe I was talking about Lowe's, the movie theater chain. Is there like home improvement? What do you what do you what do you know about home improvement? And, <laughs> You know, what are they doing technology-wise? So my background, you know, prior to this, um, I, I'm sort of a restless uh, a restless spirit. And so I always had my hands in multiple things. So sometimes I like to talk about it, what I did by day and then what I did by night. And so by day, you know, I was a creative director in advertising. You know, I worked at a few agencies, JWT, um, you know, then more recently uh, at the IPG Media Lab, you know, part of the holding company. And then by night... Um, you know, I, I started uh, businesses in, in the worlds of mobile video gaming, in the worlds of, you know, connected toys, things like that. Um, so I, through both of those career paths, I'd always been working on um, projects that sort of fused the physical and digital worlds, g generally in the realm of entertainment. So some of the things I worked on, um, we reverse engineered Muppets Band-Aids to bring the Muppet show in augmented reality form to kids and parents' hands, you know, we did that. Um, I, I directed the first uh, augmented reality Star Wars game for mobile. Um, I, you know, co-founded a company uh, that built a technology called Telepods, which basically um, was a really low-cost way to have dumb plastic toys connect uh, to mobile games, and we licensed that to Hasbro and uh, Rovio, and so every Angry Birds toy you could actually scan into your game. So, so I'd always been working. Uh, in this field um, that was pushing the edge of sort of what the world looks like when the physical and uh, digital intertwine. So getting back to Lowe's, so I mean, what was really interesting to me, um, the deeper, so frankly, the deeper I got into my own technology ventures, you know, uh, my own my own companies, and, and the more I interacted with folks in Silicon Valley and and, and, and things like that, the more I felt disconnected from real people, if that makes sense. I always felt like everything I was working towards was for the health of a technology platform, right? A technology platform that eventually displaces people, displaces jobs, um, but you end up not really thinking about that. And as you try to raise money as these things, you end up being rewarded for the non-human centered 
piece of your business. What was fascinating to me about Lowe's um, and the work that Lowe's Innovation Labs uh, does is that it's all purpose-driven. Um, Lowe's's mission is to help people love where they live. Um, and you see it in every aspect of the company. And I learned about this, you know, as I, as I was going in, um, the customer is, you know, front and center. But what's interesting is in the world of home improvement, your customer isn't just an end consumer, right? Like a homeowner. It's also a professional. Um, it's basically Lowe's serves as the engine for a whole host of industry, right? Like professional contractors, remodelers, electricians, plumbers, all these things. And and what was fascinating to me is that general ethos that sort of permeates the Lowe's culture coupled with, uh, you know, frankly, what Kyle Nell and his team at Lowe's Innovation Lab had founded, which was the most insanely human-centered storytelling-based innovation group I'd ever seen. It felt like this really interesting path um, to generate technology innovations, put them into market in a way that would be secondary to human customers, um, to helping our employees, um, to helping create all kinds of new jobs. Um, and so, so it, it's, uh, I, I couldn't pass that up. And it, uh, it's, it's, it's been a crazy journey ever since. I mean, honestly, in the past year since I've been here, we've launched everything from a robotic pilot um, in, you know, coming on 11 stores in the Bay Area to, you know, just the other day, last week, we launched robotic exoskeleton suits to help our employees in a Virginia store work with less risk of injury and things like that, all the way to, you know, we've launched, I think, three different augmented and virtual reality tools since I've been here, um, some to help train customers and employees to learn new skills and become more confident, um, others to basically take retail into the home and help people visualize um, what a project will look like before they get started. So it sounds uh, like a compelling mission to be involved with and also a very diverse one. As you say, you know, you're, you're touching on numerous different technologies there and, and numerous different roles that they may play in uh, the lives of, of customers. Does that present a challenge internally to be able to keep tying that back to some of those narratives that started the project and you know to, to maintain that sort of sense of continuity between what's going on while at the same time having the scope to experiment and, and try new things well so 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 let me just dig into that so are, are you asking do the narratives constrain us is that is that sort of where, what you're i guess more a sense of um you know how do you keep uh, the the overall mission on track because I think that's a very interesting mission statement for a, a company to have. You know, in some ways, um, it has a very specific ring to it about it being about people's homes, but also there's a, a general sort of life improvement feeling to that. Uh, and I'm wondering, yeah, as you experiment with all of these different. Um, types of technology that might be able to help people, whether it's a customer facing thing or whether it's internally facing thing to help staff do their existing roles better or expand what those existing roles might be. Um, how do you maintain that sort of continuous thread between all, all of those things, especially as presumably your own internal teams start to expand to, to have the capacity to, to do that? I'm, I'm guessing it must be difficult uh, at times to, to, to make sure that there is that sense of continuity. Yeah, that's a good, no, that's a, that, that's a really good question. I mean, so, you know, one tool that we have in place that, that keeps us moving in the same direction is our 
<laughs> for lack of a better word, our Bible of narrative themes, right? And and I, I sometimes liken it. You remember a few years ago when I think it was Mark Zuckerberg was on stage at, at a conference and he started sweating and he took his sweatshirt off and inside the sweatshirt, <laughs> the hoodie had this like secret Masonic looking, you know, map of Facebook's secret tenets. I sometimes feel like we we don't have it printed on the inside of a hoodie, but we do have very specific narrative themes that we hold pretty close to the vest. Um, and, you know, eventually they all intersect. Um, and, and these keep us on track in terms of these are the areas that are rich, that are worth exploring, that have unanimous, you know, agreement, uh, you know, upon within the group and, 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 and beyond the group. That helps on one hand. I think the other secret weapon that that keeps us on track is the fact that we are we operate like behavioral scientists so the lab's founder was uh he's an he's an applied neuroscientist um and we are very tight in terms of how we actually execute projects so we do have some exploration for exploration's sake but we we put artificial constraints and we test everything against real hypotheses that once proven or rejected, those hypotheses pull us along the journey that the narratives and that the narrative th- themes start to prescribe. Those things keep us honest. Um, and frankly, you know, and, and I can point to a number of examples, you know, any good hypothesis can be proven false, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the point. And, and what's interesting is as we reject hypotheses, we revisit our narrative themes and we actually revisit our the, the original stories that sort of gave birth to these projects. And we ask ourselves, are, are these aspects still relevant? You know, in a way, every proof of concept we put into the world is designed to test the validity of the core narrative. Now, the thing that's shocking is that there are stories that are three years old, right? And and the pace of technology, you can imagine three years ago, where we're at now is radically accelerated. You know, I, I think, to be honest, you know, when the lab initially started and the first um, virtual reality and augmented reality narratives were pushed and we started doing, working on projects, I don't think anyone within the labs even thought that three years later we would have achieved, I'm putting in air quotes, these narratives. I think it felt like a five to 10 year process, but technology surprised us, right? And in doing that, what happens is you go back, you revisit the story and you say, what's true? Um, you know, what isn't? And, 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 we we alter the course a little bit. When you go back and look at some of the original narratives, even though we're starting to surpass them, they were dead on in terms of uh, nailing, I guess, the human truths in how these technologies will change. And I, I think that speaks to the fact that when you work with visionaries and arm them with good data, you get closer to some sort of guiding truth than maybe a PowerPoint. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to dig into a little bit as well, because I find that starting point of creating those narratives and the kind of people that you partnered with to do that really intriguing for a couple of reasons. I mean, firstly, I think there's um, uh, an element of yeah, understanding how much appetite for risk, if you like, there is to envisage a novel future as opposed to just taking quite small 
iterative steps. Um, but secondly, the way in which you get an organization as a whole, especially one which yeah, has quite a tradition and a heritage to, to buy into that. Um, so I mean, for, for the, the listeners who are not familiar with, with what Lowe's has been doing around this, how did that all start? Like, how did you select that those kind of visionaries uh, and what kind of people were they that you started working with to, to form those initial narratives? So, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes, sometimes it's serendipitous and sometimes, well, this is the interesting, interesting thing. And, and, and before I got here, I was always a firm believer that if you set your intentions very well and you communicate them persuasively, you attract the right kinds of partners. Right. And then you, you start generating your all your own sort of intentional serendipity, I guess, as a result of it. You know, early on in the process, and 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 frankly, when the when Lowe's Innovation Labs first started, um, it in itself was a proof of concept. Literally, so Kyle Nell, you know, who founded the lab, he it, it was basically a one man band, you know, in, in the beginning. And the initial the initial question they wanted to solve was not, hey, can we do this technology? Can we do that? The fundamental question was. Can an old school company like Lowe's meaningfully innovate? Um, and so, what Kyle was trying to prove was, yes, it could, if we innovated in the way, um, you know, we guided our process. Um, and, and, and so, you know, he originally, you know, interviewed quite a few different science fiction writers and artists, and and you know, landed, I think, on on a group who had a strong enough sense. Uh, of technology had a demonstrated ability to envision uh, radical and, and frankly, in some cases, optimistic sci-fi futures. There's a lot of dystopian uh, content out there, um, and 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 ones who you know could feel at home working with uh, you know a big company and synthesizing data and perspectives uh, from that, and it started there, and and. Frankly, it all began as a as you know as an experiment, um, but in the process, the the comic book output was so compelling, so persuasive, and our leaders were receptive. I mean, you, you can run into a situation in which your leaders are not enlightened and not you know willing to move in that direction. And I think the combination of these stories, I think, with the personnel that Kyle put together, coupled with you know you mentioned risk our executives understanding that the reality is if you don't act on disruptive technologies, you're taking a bigger, you know, it's a much bigger risk. You're just waiting for other players to come and knock you out um, of your business. I think cohered to make some of our initial uh, virtual reality pilots happen. I'm interested as well about your mention of the, the comic book format and the role that, that that played because, um, as you say, it's key to have uh, the executive team, um, you know, the people who are setting the overall direction of the company on board to make widespread change like this happen. And and it sounds like um, putting it into that kind of graphic novel comic book format was something which enabled you guys to, to do that to an extent. Yeah. Now, I will say th- this is interesting. You know, we, we talked to a lot of folks um, and, and, and the question about comic books, you know, always comes up, which is, and people are like, Oh, can I see, can I see the comics? You know, thinking that the comic book itself is the key to unlocking (laughs) everything. Um, and, and what I always, you know, we're always advising people is that 
in our case, the comic book worked in a few ways. One, it was completely different from anything anyone had ever seen around Lowe's, right? So it had a bit of a shock factor, yet it's highly visual. Um, it It is familiar to our executives because, you know, everyone was a kid once. Everyone has picked up a comic book. Everyone understands it. And frankly, with the success of, you know, Marvel, um, you know, this, this whole notion that geeks have kind of, you know, they've taken over, you know, for decades now and most mass entertainment is based on, you know, comic culture, it was an easier, you know, route to go that way. Also, there are a number of efficiencies. It's a lot easier and quicker to put together a sequential, you know, sequential art, uh, you know, based medium than, you know, creating a prototype from scratch or creating a film or something like that. So well, and there's a role case, there as yeah. well, I think, for common language. Uh, in fact, in the previous episode of the podcast, uh, I was talking uh, with Kwame Nanning, uh, VP of Experience Design at McKinsey, and we, we spoke quite a lot about that, about that, um, the power that language has once people are all able to find a kind of shared vocabulary which allows them to collaborate across disciplines that previously may have struggled to collaborate with each other or understand where um, the other parties that were needed to make stuff happen were coming from. But once you put in place a um, common language, whether you're talking about words or pictures or a combination of the two, it kind of helps to to get that momentum happening. It gives uh, a framework for for new things to start to happen, perhaps. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. I think think it's been borne out. And we've, you know, if we've leaned toward you know, one approach, you know, more than another, I think knowing that people absorb more information visually um, than any other, you know, than any other means of of transmission, we've really leaned hard into how do we show the visual, visceral impact, you know, of where this future uh, will take us and our customers. So, yeah. And when you were working initially on those kind of narratives, um, were you specific uh, with the, the kind of visionaries that you were working with about how far into the future you wanted to project some of these visions of what Lowe's could mean to, to its customers? Um, did you, you know, did you set a specific time frame for everyone, or did you have different teams working on on different periods into the future? That's a good question. Uh, you know, in in some cases the time horizon changes. Uh, we generally try to focus on sort of a midterm, um, you know, around the 20 year, like on average, 20 years out. Um, it's funny though, oftentimes we'll start 20 years out and then a year goes by and <laughs> we realize either the future happened quicker than we thought or some of the work we've done has contributed to accelerating that future. I will give you an example. I mean. You can't even imagine what the narratives look like that gave birth to these soft robotic exoskeletons, which we now have in market on actual employees uh, in Virginia. Right? That that future seems pretty far out. I will yeah, tell t- you. This, tell me though. more about yeah. this. How how are they actually working in the the, the the store environment? I'm intrigued as to to what this actually looks like on the floor. Yeah, and actually, you know, you can. It's funny we're we're doing a podcast, so it's hard to see, but. Um, if you type in Lowe's and exoskeletons, there's a great video that's going to show you, you know, our workers in action and things like that. But, you know, one area that, that we, we focus on quite a bit is enabling superpowers. Um, and again, you know, I mentioned before, 
we're extremely human centered. Technology is, you know, always in the service of our customers and our employees. And I think in this case, um, we were lo- we've been looking at a variety of means and and futures, right, in which humans have a meaningful role as technology evolves, as artificial intelligence evolves. Um, and one, you know, one strand is how do we strengthen humans physically? Um, and it's interesting, right? There's a lot of data out there that when you compile it and you hand it over to, to visionaries, you get some really interesting stories. And so, you know, on one hand, I think we're talking about this cultural desire to keep real people and real employees relevant, right? On another, we see things like the average age of an electrician. It's something like 48 years old, right? And so the workforce, people are having to work longer and further. In some countries, safety nets aren't, aren't exactly what they used to be, right? So you give that <laughs> to riders and you start generating projects where robotics and all sorts of other technologies enable people to do more. So anyway, that's a long-winded. So once we had that narrative, what happens is we sort of put out what we call the bat signal. Um, and we, we let partners know that we're thinking about these kind of things or some of our other projects that are out in the world start to suggest that we're looking at some of these kind of things. And we, we sometimes get inbound requests. Um, we'll sometimes seek out partners. In this case, we hooked up um, with the robotics team at Virginia Tech, an amazing crew, really amazing crew. And together, we, we developed a you know, prototypical uh, exoskeleton that assists with lifting um, and, and basically helps. You know, we have a number of people at Lowe's stores who their job is to restock shelves. And they're lifting and twisting, and they're moving big, heavy uh, cans of paint, you know, big tools, lumber, all these things. We created a suit that basically uses carbon fiber rods to help them lift and do more. And so what still, from a narrative standpoint, feels very futuristic, and we were asking, you know, our artists to think about a future, you know, maybe 10 years, 15 years out. What we're seeing now is within weeks of it being there, we're getting so many new inbound requests and other folks asking, can we make this get, can we buy these suits from you? We're, we're accelerating the future by making a slice of it happen. Yeah. I guess making it tangible like that in an environment where people can come along and actually see it for themselves, you know, getting it out of the, the academic lab environment and putting it into an environment where it's exposed to a lot more in the way of real world challenges, uh, but the, the the link back there to um, how that actually impacts the lives of those who are going to be using these things is one which which really intrigues me because user centered design um, user experience work these days you know tends to be quite closely associated with things or at least the the, the the cutting edge of it tends to be associated with things which are happening within the virtual environment. Um, and a lot of the practitioner skills that exist out there in the world today are accustomed to doing things which uh, exist in a you know, quite a circular way, purely within the virtual space. But when you come to create something like this, you know, you're, you've got a foot in both worlds, both in the physical and the virtual space, and you're dealing with some quite heavy bits of uh, machinery and you know large objects in stores, and you're using the, the physicality of these uh, robotic suits to, to, to assist people. Yeah, how do you go about um, ensuring that you go through that kind of user-centered design process and um, yeah, that all of those kind of things which can help shape the experience 
experience of the users um, in that kind of environment where presumably there are a whole bunch of challenges that you just wouldn't normally come across if you were doing this purely in, in virtual space? Well, um, I mean, this and this applies to the mechanical. It does apply also, you know, as well to the virtual. So, you know, I sort of mentioned one of the lab's secret weapons is our use of narrative to guide, build consensus, and help set a direction for what are we going to work on, right? Another one of the secret weapons is um, our use of advanced uh, research tools and methodologies to help, you know, essentially derive results that that give us an extremely deep understanding of how these things work um, and how well, you know, they can work in the future. And, and you know, one of those tools is uh, a set of capabilities that we've developed in collaboration with a company called Neurons um, in applied neuroscience. Um, you know, look, I love qualitative research, um, but people lie. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting, right? When you show people a robot suit, you know, and you put it on and you ask, hey, what do you think of it? Hey, it's a robot suit, right? Everyone's going to tell you, this is awesome. This is great. When you start using, um, you know, applied neuro tools, you, you start to get a sense of the stress that is going on inside their head. You start to get a sense for their motivation and their sense of arousal. Um, okay, and so, you're so also what do these yeah. applied neuro tools, you know, what, what kind of emotions can you sense with these? How much of a picture can you get of how people are really thinking? Yeah, I mean, an extremely, extremely detailed. And, and, and look, we generally cross-reference um, the applied neuro tools against eye tracking, against user interfaces. And, you know, when it comes to robotic suits, against biomechanical testing, right? Where we're actually looking at posture and we're cross-referencing all of these things, right? Um, from a pure neuro standpoint, we're really testing for, you know, I guess four major metrics, right? Um, one is focus. And we're really looking at, again, how focused someone is on at any given point of a task um, or interaction. We're looking at cognitive load, um, you know, which pretty straightforward, um, how intense is an experience and, and how taxing is it on the brain? And, and what's interesting, I mean, and, and I think anyone in this field knows, you know, low cognitive load doesn't always mean you have the best experience, right? We're, we're always trying to find that balance between overload and boredom and really finding that place where we can get people into flow and give them continual challenge. Uh, we're looking at arousal um, and really arousal is sort of this, um, I guess it's a proxy for engagement to some degree. Um, and, and we're gauging what their, you know, automatic response to things. And it's interesting because arousal can, can move in, in a variety of directions, right? You can be positively aroused. Also your reptilian brain can fire off warning signs and you can imagine, you know, let's say a robotic suit, not that we actually experienced this. We've had really good results, but you can imagine the first time you get this thing put on you and there's some moving metal pieces, you can imagine there's a part in, in the deep recesses of your mind that might be a little freaked out and wants to run, you know? So we look at all those things. And then lastly, motivation, um, you know, and, 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 and how, you know, willing is a user to keep moving through and how interested are they in, you know, working with an experience or a technology. And so across those four, 
once we cross-reference those against qualitative research, against biomechanical studies, um, you know, against the whole battery of tools, we then can put together a picture and, and really understand, A, is something working for a person? And B, what do we need to change? And, you know, how do we tweak the design? Apply neuro, I mean, it it's taken us so much further, I think, than any other, you know, research methodology. And, and that applies for virtual as well as, um, you know, the, the, the physical. I mean, uh, one thing to note on that, right, you know, I mentioned over the past three years, we've done quite a few proofs of concept. I think we're on eight or nine right now. And we've, we've used these applied neuro tools on each of them. So we've built at, you know, at the innovation labs, we've built, I think, one of the world's largest knowledge bases of what's going on in people's heads when they're inside of a virtual or mixed reality experience. And we've seen results across every major platform from Oculus, Rift, to Vive, to Tango, to HoloLens. And, and it's helped us build a pretty compelling picture. It's helped us place bets. And it's also helped us refine the experiences as we move into new platforms. Now, for someone like you, Josh, who I know you, know, you started doing things around the area of augmented and, and virtual reality, you know, some years back. Um, what does it mean to you as an individual practitioner to now have access to those kind of tools around applied neuro, which allow you to get that that different level, that deeper level of of insight compared to when you were doing this back in the day? <laughs> Yeah, what, what, what I mean, does it enable you to, to do differently? No, it's it's incredible. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'll give you a weird, I'll give you a weird example. So, you know, in my past, I was developing augmented reality games and, and all kinds of stuff like that. You know, if I'd had these tools, oh man, I, the minute I saw that these were available to us at the labs, I was like a kid in a candy store. When you know, so one of the games that I worked on a few years back. We worked with Hasbro on augmented reality laser tech, and we built a game, you know, from the ground up in which you hook your iPhone into the cradle of an infrared laser tag gun, and then you and like 23 other kids can run around like maniacs, shoot at each other, and you know, feel like you're in a video game. You know, it was kind of, the promise was you could see the lasers for the first time. Now, had we used applied neuro before really sending kids out, I feel like we would have evolved, or, or we would have avoided. Um, at least one injury. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was testing with a small group and, and, and one dude, he was so engaged with the interface on that small mobile screen that was hooked into the scope of his gun that he didn't see a tree and he ran right into it. <laughs> right. Well, wow, that is a hundred percent engagement. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, on one hand that was, that was pretty good. Um, yeah, but physically not so good. Right. And, and what's interesting is if, if I had used the applied neuro, we could have, understood that before we sent someone out into a, you know, a, a park filled with dangerous trees and things like that. Um, no, but it's, 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 it's really been amazing. And, and what we're understanding and, and honestly, the differences in the, the platforms um, and even just seeing how comfortable people grow with the technologies over time and where the areas um, of discomfort still exist, you know, gives you a sense for how quickly um, will users gravitate toward these next generation VR and mixed reality uh, headsets and, and, you know, and devices. It's been really cool. Yeah, that's something which 
really intrigues me about the the future of this area. Um, we've run some some user testing ourselves with some of the the early VR headsets um, and seen many of the problems which are still associated with those technologies you know sometimes quite basic things around lack of processing power or overheating of devices or you know people just not being accustomed to it um, but also seen just how compelling the experience can be even when there are those problems in place and it gives you a a little clue i think as to the level to which these things can engage people emotionally and you get yeah. the sense that as those um teething problems get ironed out uh, we will start to, to see quite a rapid uptake of this and uh, only the other day I think there was someone at Microsoft who came out um, and was saying uh, that they feel like smartphones uh, as an industry as an area for, for, for innovation um, uh, is kind of done already you know the, yes there's going to be interesting new things that happen but really that the boat has sailed on that one and that they're shifting their focus now to uh, at a company-wide level to some of these real new cutting-edge things around mixed reality augmented reality that they're doing with with hololens and so on um and i mean i, I wonder for you you know working on these sort of things now day to day and getting the chance to deploy them um, to, to real customers uh, and getting them out there in the world. You know, are you starting to get a sense that this is something which has the potential to become a mass consumer medium in the way that we've seen with things like smartphones, for instance? Unequivocally, yes. Um, what uh, I would say we're still early in terms of the form factor being right and, and in terms of the interface guidelines um, being figured out, but it is definitely, um, you know, one of the most interesting and, and, you know, it may sound obvious when you talk about it, but one of the most interesting findings to me has been when we, when we give, let's say a Tango device to consumers and have them visualize uh, a kitchen or a bath, even in a really clunky application state, right? So this is Google Tango. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, um, perhaps for, for listeners who aren't familiar with yeah, that, maybe you yeah. could just give the, the basics of, of how Tango works. Sure, sure. So so Tango is a you know an integrated hardware and software platform from Google um, based on depth sensing camera technologies that enable mobile devices to see where they are and understand where they are in you know three-dimensional space um you know I, I like to think about it as sort of a remember the xbox connect camera sort of miniaturizing the functionality of that and making it portable um it's been very interesting it, it it's it's you know a move towards i think a foundational technology for position and visual awareness um you know for this world of mixed reality and right now it's baked into a small handful of devices. There's one from Lenovo. There's one from Asus coming out soon, um, which, you know, it's interesting. Anyone who's played Pokemon Go, you know, is pretty familiar with the looking through a window for a visually augmented experience. Tango ups, I think, ups the situational awareness a bit by arming the phone uh, with a set of hardware and, and software. And so, you know, it's one of the tools and one of the platforms we've worked with. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when people go into a load store, one of the mechanisms we have set up to help them visualize, oh, this is what my kitchen could look like, or this is what my bath could look like, is what we call the vignette. 
right? You go if you've been into a Lowe's store, you'll know. You walk to the back of the store, there are a handful of sample baths and sample kitchens where you can see sinks and showers and uh, you know all that stuff set up, and you can walk around. That, that that's been sort of the default way to help merchandise. Now, we, so one of the most interesting findings was when we put, for example, Google Tango uh, up against the vignette. Frankly, when we put up an Oculus Rift, you know, hollow room experience where you were completely enclosed. Any of these experiences, when we compared them against the basic um, vignette experience where you can see a sample kitchen and touch it in real life, the virtual and mixed reality experiences always performed higher. People were more engaged. They felt a bit more comfortable because I, they understood that what they were seeing in this virtual environment um, was giving them more uh, a picture that was independent from this fixed display. That's what we think. Um, and it's, it's interesting. And, and, and that finding alone, I think, suggests that once we can make these tools a bit more sophisticated, once they're available to use in your home in a meaningful way, oh man, people will never go back to you know the old way of getting inspiration or trying to visualize something. So, Do you think I, that comes down yeah. to the power of, of personalization? Because I mean that that that's one of I suppose the key things that you can do through a medium like that, which you can't do, um, or is is impractical to do at a in a mass way when you're purely doing things in the physical environment, is to give people that you know, literally individual by individual level of personalization as to the experience that they're they're having. I mean, is that the at the heart of what makes it? compelling for people yeah i think so and and to even break it down a little bit uh, you know more tactically for what it means for home improvement personalization is basically the answer to a simple question which is what is this going to look like when it's done or when it's in my home right it pretty simple um and it's it's this question in which it's this it's a question that paralyzes right and i don't know if you've ever gotten an argument with anybody over, hey, do we want to get this couch? Do we want to do that? It's it's this strange, um, this visualization question, particularly when you're dealing with your own personal space, is such a difficult thing. So I might, you know, I, I might, it's definitely personalization, but it's, it's the act of near real visualization that I think is what it solves in our field for home improvement. It's really important. But I think for other things like automotive, I mean, frankly, being able to see the end result in a number of fields before it happens will change behavior radically. You know, even when you're booking an Uber car or something like that, being able to know what kind of car it is and what that experience with the driver is like and being able to understand that before helps you make a decision. You know what I mean? And, and, And it helps you figure out. If you want to move with it, yeah, that that's an interesting take on it. Yeah, as you say, once you make it tangible, then yes, it can be personalized to to the vision of one particular user. But also, it does then make it possible to have much more meaningful collaborative and group conversations around that because you have a defined, tangible end result which everyone can can get around and offer their views on, be that something, as you say, around the design of a car or around the design of a, a living room or whatever it is. Once you can visualize like that, again, you come back to that question of, of a, a sort of shared vocabulary. Everyone then can see what it may 
look like and can then share their opinion and you can move forward as a group, which when it's entirely in the intangible and, and the abstract and just, you know, someone's mind's eye version of what it might be, um, there can be a lot of, of disparity between that. Yeah. And, and it's it's been really fascinating to see in, you know, in the various proofs of concept, we're starting to, even in very rough prototypes, very rough executions, the level of conversation between the user and let's say a professional or a Lowe's employee or even their spouse who's there with them, the level of conversation goes goes up. And I, I think the, the nuance and detail and ability to articulate increases too. Um, and that's been really interesting to see. So I'm sure that many of the people listening to this may be slightly envious of your role, Josh, because you have access to some very interesting tools. And it sounds like you have um, the support of an organization which is uh, interested in experimenting around you know, many of the, these new technologies. But there's also, of course, the question of uh, the commercial side of this as well, because Presumably, the, the the future of the the work that you're doing there and the innovation labs as a whole, you know, once you extrapolate that further out into the future, there has to be a a commercial justification to helping Lowe's fulfill its overall mission as a, a company here. So, how do you go from some of these experimental things that you've been doing and that focus on you know pushing those user centered values to actually coming back to something where you can say this is starting to make a, a tangible contribution to us as a, a commercial organization? <laughs> this is one of those areas where there's a lot of things I'd love to talk about. Um, I can't <laughs> about a lot of it. What, but what I will say is being able to take these proofs of concept and, and bring them into the mainstream Lowe's as a business, right? Either creating new capabilities, creating new businesses, Within Lowe's or even without Lowe's is, uh, you know, it is a it is a major imperative. This isn't just a, and it's funny when you mentioned you know people are probably envious of the job and all that. You know, inside I was I was just sort of laughing because if you knew the pain <laughs> and the false, you know, what I mean, the false roads we have to go down and validate and invalidate, um, it's not. It's funny. This is it, 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 it's hard work making this happen, and even you know, I would say, earning the right to shift the company is a daily fight. You know, it's not a, you know, I wish it was like a, hey, yeah, we're rock stars, everybody's cool, but I mean, we really, it, it's it, it's work, you know, and that's I guess the secret to it, right? It's, it's every day you're fighting fighting to do these things, and so our end goal because there's pain involved and because uh, it is hard work, our goal is to make these things uh, actually to help take some of these and turn Lowe's into a structurally different place. Um, and, and look, I think everything that we do from the way we lay out narrative to the way we pursue, you know, tightly prescripted uh, hypotheses to our use of applied neuro is all in the service of building a deep understanding of, is this going to work as a capability or business? Um, and, and so there are a variety of technologies that we've been working on for a while that I do think we're comfortable um, with certain aspects and certain offshoots to start moving those forward. And, and that 
you know, that a lot of my life here at Lowe's is helping identify those and helping push those forward. Um, so it's funny. I- I've talked forever. The meat of my job, I'm not allowed to talk about. <laughs> Well, that, that's interesting. I mean, coming back to you know something you said right um, early on in the the, the podcast um, about you know, your initial motivation for for getting into this this role and being able to take things uh, into you know, a, a mass commercial market where they can actually impact the lives of a large number of people at scale and to do that across you know, both their physical and their their virtual experiences. Now that you've had some time in the role, reflecting back on that decision, do you feel like you know you were you were on the right track with that decision? That this is a role which is giving you the chance to actually yeah impact people people's lives in the ways that you're expecting? Oh, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, it. it if anything, I think I underestimated just how um, how much of an impact we would be able to make. It's crazy. And, you know, look, on an, anecdotal, on an anecdotal level, I can't tell you how many emails we've gotten from employees just across the Lowe's network who saw the exoskeletons and are just loving it, trying to get in on the next round. I mean, it's, it, it's amazing to just see how involved. I mean, I'm also, you know, when we've seen some interesting things where you put a virtual reality or, you know, AR pilot out into the world, we're actually starting to get responses from folks who work in the stores who have a background in AutoCAD and, you know, who spend a lot of time creating 3D models. And you start to realize that these these efforts aren't just helping the company move forward, you know, at the top. They're starting to unlock latent talent and even suggest new pathways we can go down to help, uh, you know, create new roles for our employees. It's really, really interesting. Well, that's pretty inspiring stuff. I mean, I think that's when user-centered design is at its most powerful. It's when you're able to create those sort of totems, if you like, that people can seize upon and, and use as inspirations and start then contributing skills from their own particular background, their own particular profession or craft. Uh, and you find the the thing becomes greater than the sum of its parts. You know, I think that's, that's when these sort of technologies, the, these sort of initiatives can be at their most compelling. Yeah, no, without a doubt. So it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I'm hoping, you know, Later this year and into next year, the next, <laughs> you know, the, the next things we have coming up will push it even further. It's funny. It's, uh, I wish I could talk about them, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really incredible stuff. Uh, well, I'm, I'm conscious that, uh, you know, we're coming up to the, the end of our time for the, the conversation. Um, but we do have this tradition on the MEX podcast of our show and tell section, which we've kind of left till, till last for this episode. Um, but uh, perhaps we, we've saved the, the best till last. And I know you've gone <laughs> off to look at uh, an example of something to share, which might inspire some of our listeners to, to think differently about something uh, in our show and tell. So, so what have you found for us uh, for, for this episode? So, yeah, um, it's funny. I was really digging. I was trying to dig deep and find something obscure and something that, you know, no one had ever heard of and and would be incredible. But I realized, you know, I I think the the application or whatever, the the, the thing that right now is infecting 
my thinking and uh, on a daily basis probably more than anything else is the latest Legend of Zelda game for the Nintendo Switch. Um, you know, and on one level, I'm probably just trying to rationalize that I've played way too many hours of this game when I should be tending to my child and, you know, being a good, just a good dad and good, a good spouse. Um, but what's been really interesting to me about this Legend of Zelda, you know, I, and I, I was always a gamer, um, but, you know, in recent years, I don't spend that much time playing games. I don't love playing open world games because they threaten to suck up a hundred hours you know, of your time, just giving you tasks to complete. What's been really fascinating to me about Zelda is they've created this massive world and they've almost eliminated, well, not almost, they've eliminated many of the markers that typical open world games have to give you guidance and keep you addicted uh, to playing the game. And the essence of the game comes down to simply walking all over this well-crafted world, exploring, looking at a map, trying to plot your own way to get there. And, and, and this this experience, the gestalt of it, I can't even really explain it. It's like trying to explain the taste of chocolate. You know, you just need to eat it. Is I have this, I have this feeling when I play it that is different than anything I experience in real life, which is kind of sad. So when you drive from place to place, or when I drive from place to place, I typically put on a GPS. I put on Waze so I can avoid traffic. And what's happened is I've become so attuned to the GPS interface that I don't really think about where it is I'm going. You know, and I've lived in North Carolina for about a year now. And I've realized that when I turn GPS off, even for very simple to get to places, I have a hard time getting there because I'm not paying attention to where I am or trying to understand and explore this world. When I get into Zelda which is stripped away uh, common GPS elements, I actually feel like I'm exploring a world and starting to appreciate its features, and I can't wait to go back. It's a very odd, odd sensation. Um, and it it's probably it's says very more, interesting yeah. the way you, you describe it, actually, because I I'm, must confess I'm not much of a, a gamer myself. I mean, I'm familiar with, with Zelda as a, a series, but um, gaming has never really been my thing. But I I think I, you know, sort of hear the underlying point that you're making about it, about stripping, once you start to strip out some of those sort of reward mechanics that we've become accustomed to or some of that sort of day-to-day structure of the, the the point system in life or did I get there in the most efficient way um, versus, you know, did I spend some time exploring and finding it out for myself that that can actually enrich the, the, the moment itself, which is a, you know, quite an interesting thing to try and um, – convert into the digital environment as opposed to, to something that you might experience in sort of day-to-day physical life. Yeah. Well, it's gotten me thinking, you know, for example, most GPS, um, you know, most GPS applications, the default view or the view that most people are looking at, actually, whichever direction you're going in, it's it has you pointed up or like an air quotes north, right? It's you are always at the center of wherever you're going and whichever direction you're going in is up, right? And as I'm playing this game, and I've stripped away most of the heads-up display elements, so I just have to refer to the map, I realize that subtle tweak where you're understanding your position in the context of just, you know, true northwest, east-south, actually reorients, for me anyway, it reorients my understanding of my place 
in this world and encourages, you know, uh, exploration. So it's interesting. I've started to change my GPS view or just turn it off, but where it doesn't orient the world around me, you know what I mean? It's a very odd, and, and as we're starting to develop, you know, new applications that we're thinking about, you know, we just made an announcement, um, you know, we have a pilot in a couple of stores, Lowe's stores, um, with turn-by-turn in-store directions, right? Navigation through the Google Tango platform. I've started to think about how do we reorient you so you're more aware of your surroundings, the exploration is fun, um, you know, and, 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 you know, maybe you're even more willing to talk to other shoppers and to other, you know, employees. It's, it's interesting. This game, it's really got, you know, the, the tens of hours I put into it, I feel like have been worth it. <laughs> you should play it. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to, uh, to check that out. I'm intrigued by um, the Nintendo Switch as well. I, I think, um, yeah, as an organization, I'm always impressed and surprised by how Nintendo manages to create experiences that others somehow missed. Uh, and they seem to have a, a way of doing that um, time after time, you know, over a period of decades, which I think is a fascinating culture for a company to have. So perhaps that's going to go onto my wish list. Yeah. I mean, they actually, one other random thing that they did that is one of my favorite things in recent years, this is a few years ago, they had a game, I think it was, you know, a, like a mini game for the Nintendo 3DS. And in this game, it was a baseball game with cartoony animals. The in-app purchase, there were, there were in-app purchases in the game, but you could haggle with, you know, in-game prompts with this dog, this cartoon dog to change the pricing. And what was interesting is the more you listened to what he had to say and let him tell his story, the, the lower the prices would go. It was so strange. And Nintendo would, you know, they'd, act, they'd literally lose money on the transaction if you spent time having the right kinds of interactions with the character. I forget what it was called. I think it was like Rusty's Baseball or something like that. It blew my mind. They do so many things that are just these weird, they feel like weird one-off experiments, but I think they suggest so much for the future of integrated digital and physical uh, experience. Yeah, for sure. An interesting company to watch. I wonder what they'll come up with next. But I guess we've come to the, the end of our time for this conversation, Josh. But thank you very much indeed for taking the time to, to share some of the things that you've been up to at Lowe's and uh, the, the background that's that's brought you into that role. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to watch what comes next obviously we'll put links into the show notes so that people can go and check out some of the things which have already been announced but it sounds like um the best may yet be to come so um hopefully people will watch this space cool thanks for having me not at all it's been a pleasure and that's it for this edition If you want to find a link to anything which piqued your interest, then head on over to mobileuserexperience.com where you will find detailed show notes and easy links to find all of the interesting stuff. Don't forget that there's also the full archive of all of our previous Mech's Design Talk shows, 34 of them now, at mobileuserexperience.com. They're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much wherever else you find good podcasts. So do tell your friends, share the links with them and help us grow the listenership of the podcast. You can drop us a line by email, designtalk 
at mobileuserexperience.com or on Twitter at MexFeed. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.